Chapter Ten, Part Two, of the Lost Girl by D. H. Lawrence. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. And where are the Natchiki Tawaras this week? He asked. They told him, Oh, and you two are cycling back to the camp of Kishwagan tonight. We mustn't prolong our cheerfulness too far. Chicho is staying to help me with my bag tomorrow," said Alvina. "You know I've joined the Tawaras permanently as pianist. No, I didn't know that. Oh, really, really. Oh, well, I see. Permanently. Yes, I am surprised. Yes, as pianist. And if I might ask, what is your share of the tribal income? That isn't settled yet," said Alvina. "No, exactly, exactly. It wouldn't be settled yet. And you say it is a permanent engagement? Of course, at such a figure. Yes, it is a permanent engagement," said Alvina. "Really, what a blow you give me! You won't come back to the endeavour. What? Not at all? No," said Alvina. "I shall sell out of the endeavour. Really, you've decided, have you? Oh." This is news to me, and is this quite final too? Quite," said Alvina. "I see. Putting two and two together, if I may say so," and he glanced from her to the young men. "I see, most decidedly, most one-sidedly, if I may use the vulgarism. I see e e. Oh, but what a blow you give me! What a blow you give me! Why?" said Alvina. What's to become of the endeavour, and consequently of poor me? Can't you keep it going? Form a company? I'm afraid I can't. I've done my best, but I'm afraid, you know, you've landed me. I'm so sorry," said Alvina. "I hope not." Thank you for the hope," said Mr. May sarcastically. "They say hope is sweet. I begin to find it a little bitter." Poor man, he had already gone quite yellow in the face. Chicho and Geoffrey watched him with dark-seeing eyes. "And when are you going to let this fatal decision take effect?" asked Mister May. "I'm going to see the lawyer tomorrow, and I'm going to tell him to sell everything and clear up as soon as possible," said Alvina. "Sell everything, this house and all it contains?" "Yes," said Alvina. "Everything." "Really?" Mister May seemed smitten quite dumb. "I feel as if the world had suddenly come to an end," he said. But hasn't your world often come to an end before? said Alvina. Well, I suppose once or twice, but never quite on top of me. You see, before there was a silence. And have you told Miss Pinnegar? said Mister May. Not finally, but she's decided to open a little business in Tamworth where she has relations. Has she? And are you really going to tour with these young people? He indicated Chicho and Gigi. And at no salary," his voice rose. "Why, it's almost white slave traffic on Madame's part. Upon my word, I don't think so," said Alvina. "Don't you see that's insulting?" "Insulting? Well, I don't know. I think it's the truth." "Not to be said to me for all that," said Alvina, quivering with anger. "Oh," perked Mister May, yellow with strange rage. "Oh." I mustn't say what I think. Oh, not if you think those things," said Alvina. "Oh, really? The difficulty is, you see, I'm afraid I do think them. 
Alvina watched him with big, heavy eyes. "'Go away,' she said. "'Go away. I won't be insulted by you.' "'No, indeed!' cried Mr. May, starting to his feet, his eyes almost bolting from his head. "'No, indeed! I wouldn't think of insulting you in the presence of these two young gentlemen.' Chicho rose slowly, and with a slow, repeated motion of the head indicated the door. "'Allez,' he said. "'Certainement!' cried Mr. May, flying at Chicho, verbally like an enraged hen, yellow at the gills. "'Certainement! Je m'en vais. Cette compagnie n'est pas de ma choix.' "'Allez!' said Chicho, more loudly. And Mr. May strutted out of the room like a bird bursting with its own rage. Chicho stood with his hands on the table, listening. They heard Mr. May slam the front door. "'Gone!' said Geoffrey. Chicho smiled, sneeringly. "'Voyez, un cochon de lait,' said Gigi, amply and calmly. Chicho sat down in his chair. Geoffrey poured out some beer for him, saying, "'Drink, my cheek. The bubble has burst. Pfft!' And Gigi knocked in his own puffed cheek with his fist. "'Allez, my dear, your health!' We are the Tawaras, we are Ale, we are Pakokwila, we are Walgatchka. Allons, the milk pig is stewed and eaten. Voila! <laughs> he drank, smiling broadly. One by one, said Geoffrey, who was a little drunk, one by one, we put them out in the field. They are hors de combat. Who remains? Pakokwila, Walgatchka, Ale. He smiled very broadly. Alvina was sitting sunk in thought and torpor after her sudden anger. "'Allez, what do you think about? You are the bride of Tawara,' said Geoffrey. Alvina looked at him, smiling rather wanly. "'And who is Tawara?' she asked. He raised his shoulders and spread his hands and swayed his head from side to side, for all the world like a comic mandarin. "'There!' he cried. "'The question! Who is Tawara? Who? Tell me!' Chicho is he, and I am he, and Max and Louis. He spread his hand to the distant members of the tribe. I can't be the bride of all four of you, said Alvina, laughing. No, 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 such a thing does not come into my mind. But you are the bride of Tawara. You dwell in the tent of Pacohuila, and comes the day, should it ever be so. There is no room for you in the tent of Pacohuila. Then the lodge of Walgatchka the bear is open for you. Open, yes, wide open. He spread his arms from his ample chest at the end of the table. Open, and when Ale enters, it is the lodge of Ale. Walgatchka is the bear that serves Ale. By the law of the pale face, by the law of the Yengeese, by the law of the Francais, Walgatchka shall be husband bear to Allais. That day she lifts the door curtain of his tent. He rolled his eyes and looked around. Alvina watched him. But I might be afraid of a husband bear, she said. Geoffrey got on to his feet. By the Manitou, he said, the head of the bear, Walgatchka is humble. Here Geoffrey bowed his head. His teeth are as soft as lilies. Here he opened his mouth and put his finger on his small, close teeth. His hands are as soft as bees that stroke a flower. Here he spread his hands and went and suddenly flopped on his knees beside Alvina, 
showing his hands and his teeth still, and rolling his eyes. "'Allez can have no fear at all of the bear, Walgatchka,' he said, looking up at her comically. Chicho, who had been watching and slightly grinning, here rose to his feet and took Geoffrey by the shoulder, pulling him up. Basta, he said, to a Saul, you are drunk, my Gigi. Get up. How are you going to ride to Mansfield, eh? Great beast. Chicho, said Geoffrey solemnly, I love thee. I love thee as a brother, and also more. I love thee as a brother, my Chicho, as thou knowest. But, and he puffed fiercely, I am the slave of Alea, I am the tame bear of Alea. Get up, said Chicho. Get up, Pebacho. She doesn't want a tame bear. He smiled down on his friend. Geoffrey rose to his feet and flung his arms round Chicho. Chich, he besought him. Chich, I love thee as a brother, but let me be the tame bear of Alay. Let me be the gentle bear of Alay. All right, said Chicho. Thou art the tame bear of Alay. Geoffrey strained Chicho to his breast. "'Thank you, thank you. Salute me, my own friend.' And Chicho kissed him on either cheek, whereupon Geoffrey immediately flopped on his knees again before Alvina, and presented her his broad, rich-coloured cheek. "'Salute your bear, Alay,' he cried. "'Salute your slave, the tame bear, Walgatchka, who is a wild bear, for all except Alay and his brother.' Pacohuila, the puma. Geoffrey growled realistically as a wild bear, as he kneeled before Alvina, presenting his cheek. Alvina looked at Chicho, who stood above watching. Then she lightly kissed him on the cheek and said, "'Won't you go to bed and sleep?' Geoffrey staggered to his feet, shaking his head. "'No, no,' he said. "'No, no, while Gatchka must travel to the tent of Kishwegen to the camp of the Tawaras.' "'Not to-night, mon brave,' said Chicho. "'To-night we stay here, eh? "'Why separate, eh? "'Frère?' Geoffrey again clasped Chicho in his arms. "'Pacohuila and Walgatchka are blood-brothers, two bodies, one blood. "'One blood in two bodies, one stream in two valleys, "'one lake between two mountains.' "'Here Geoffrey gazed with large, heavy eyes on Chicho.' Alvina brought a candle and lighted it. "'You will manage in the one room,' she said. "'I'll give you another pillow.' She led the way upstairs. Geoffrey followed heavily. Then Chicho. On the landing Alvina gave them the pillow and the candle, smiled, bade them good-night in a whisper, and went downstairs again. She cleared away the supper and carried away all glasses and bottles from the drawing-room. Then she washed up, removing all traces of the feast. The cards she restored to their old mahogany box. Manchester House looked itself again. She turned off the gas at the meter and went upstairs to bed. From the far room she could hear the gentle but profound vibrations of Geoffrey's snoring. She was tired after her day, too tired to trouble about anything any more. But in the morning she was first downstairs. She heard Miss Pinnegar and hurried. Hastily she opened the windows and doors to drive away the smell of beer and smoke. She heard the men rumbling in the bathroom, and quickly she prepared breakfast and made a fire. Mrs. Rowlings would not appear till later in the day. At a quarter to seven Miss Pinnegar came down, and went into the scullery to make her tea. 
"'Did both the men stay?' she asked. "'Yes, they both slept in the end room,' said Alvina. Miss Pinnegar said no more, but padded with her tea and her boiled egg into the living room. In the morning she was wordless. Chicho came down, in his shirt-sleeves as usual, but wearing a collar. He greeted Miss Pinnegar politely. "'Good morning,' she said, and went on with her tea. Geoffrey appeared. Miss Pinnegar glanced once at him, sullenly, and briefly answered his good morning. Then she went on with her egg, slow and persistent in her movements. Mum. The men went out to attend to Geoffrey's bicycle. The morning was slow and grey, obscure. As they pumped up the tyres, they heard someone padding behind. Miss Pinnegar came and unbolted the yard door, but ignored their presence. Then they saw her return and slowly mount the outer stair ladder which went up to the top floor. Two minutes afterwards they were startled by the eruption of the work-girls. As for the work-girls, they gave quite loud, startled squeals, suddenly seeing the two men on their right hand in the obscure morning, and they lingered on the stairway to gaze in rapt curiosity, poking and whispering, until Miss Pinnegar appeared overhead and sharply rang a bell which hung beside the entrance door of the workrooms. After which excitements Geoffrey and Chicho went in to breakfast, which Alvina had prepared. "'You have done it all, eh?' said Chicho, glancing round. "'Yes, I've made breakfast for years now,' said Alvina. "'Not many more times here, eh?' he said, smiling significantly. "'I hope not,' said Alvina. Chicho sat down, almost like a husband, as if it were his right. Geoffrey was very quiet this morning. He ate his breakfast and rose to go. "'I shall see you soon,' he said, smiling sheepishly and bowing to Alvina. Chicho accompanied him to the street. When Chicho returned, Alvina was once more washing dishes. "'What time shall we go?' he said. "'We'll catch the one train. I must see the lawyer this morning. And what shall you say to him? I shall tell him to sell everything.' "'And marry me?' She started and looked at him. "'You don't want to marry, do you?' she said. "'Yes, I do.' "'Wouldn't you rather wait and see?' "'What?' he said. "'See if there is any money.' He watched her steadily, and his brow darkened. "'Why?' he said. She began to tremble. "'You'd like it better if there was money?' A slow, sinister smile came on his mouth. His eyes never smiled, except to Geoffrey, when a flood of warm, laughing light sometimes suffused them. "'You think I should?' "'Yes, it's true, isn't it?' "'You would?' He turned his eyes aside, and looked at her hands as she washed the forks. They trembled slightly. Then he looked back at her eyes again, that were watching him, large and wistful, and a little accusing. His impudent laugh came on his face. "'Yes,' he said. "'It is always better if there is money.' He put his hand on her, and she winced. "'But I marry you for love, you know. You know what love is?' And he put his arms round her, and laughed down into her face. She strained away. "'But you can have love without marriage,' she said. "'You know that.' "'All right, all right. Give me love, eh? I want that.' She struggled against him. "'But not now,' she said. She saw the light in his eyes fixed determinedly, and he nodded. "'Now,' he said. "'Now!' His yellow tawny eyes looked down into hers, alien and overbearing. "'I can't,' she said. "'I can't now.' He laughed in a sinister way, yet with a certain warm-heartedness. 
"'Come to that big room,' he said. Her face flew fixed into opposition. "'I can't now, really,' she said grimly. His eyes looked down at hers. Her eyes looked back at him, hard and cold and determined. They remained motionless for some seconds. Then, a stray wisp of her hair catching his attention, desire filled his heart, warm and full, obliterating his anger in the combat. For a moment he softened. He saw her hardness becoming more assertive, and he wavered in sudden dislike, and almost dropped her. Then again the desire flushed his heart, his smile became reckless of her, and he picked her right up. "'Yes, sir,' he said. "'Now?' For a second she struggled frenziedly, but almost instantly she recognised how much stronger he was, and she was still, mute and motionless with anger. White and mute and motionless she was taken to her room, and at the back of her mind all the time she wondered at his deliberate recklessness of her. Recklessly he had his will of her but deliberately and thoroughly, not rushing to the issue, but taking everything he wanted of her, progressively and fully, leaving her stark, with nothing, nothing of herself, nothing. When she could lie still she turned away from him, still mute, and he lay with his arms over her, motionless. Noises went on in the street, overhead in the workroom, but theirs was complete silence. At last he rose and looked at her, "'Love is a fine thing, Allez,' he said. She lay mute and unmoving. He approached, laid his hand on her breast, and kissed her. "'Love,' he said, asserting and laughing. But still she was completely mute and motionless. He threw bedclothes over her and went downstairs, whistling softly. She knew she would have to break her own trance of obstinacy. So she snuggled down into the bedclothes, shivering deliciously, for her skin had become chilled. She didn't care a bit, really, about her own downfall. She snuggled deliciously in the sheets, and admitted to herself that she loved him. In truth she loved him, and she was laughing to herself. Luxuriously she resented having to get up and tackle her heap of broken garments, but she did it. She took other clothes, adjusted her hair, tied on her apron, and went downstairs once more. She could not find Chicho. he had gone out. A stray cat darted from the scullery, and broke a plate in her leap. Alvina found her washing up water cold. She put on more, and began to dry her dishes. Chicho returned shortly, and stood in the doorway, looking at her. She turned to him, unexpectedly laughing. "'What do you think of yourself?' she laughed. "'Well,' he said, with a little nod, and a furtive look of triumph about him, evasive. He went past her and into the room. Her inside burned with love for him, so elusive, so beautiful, in his silent passing out of her sight. She wiped her dishes happily. Why was she so absurdly happy? she asked herself. And why did she still fight so hard against the sense of his dark, unseizable beauty? Unseizable, forever unseizable. That made her almost his slave. She fought against her own desire to fall at his feet. Ridiculous to be so happy. She sang to herself as she went about her work downstairs. Then she went upstairs to do the bedrooms and pack her bag. At ten o'clock she was to go to the family lawyer. She lingered over her possessions, what to take and what not to take. And so doing she wasted her time. 
It was already ten o'clock when she hurried downstairs. He was sitting quite still, waiting. He looked up at her. "'Now I must hurry,' she said. "'I don't think I should be more than an hour.' He put on his hat and went out with her. "'I shall tell the lawyer I am engaged to you, shall I?' she asked. "'Yes,' he said. "'Tell him what you like.' He was indifferent. "'Because,' said Alvina gaily, "'we can please ourselves what we do, whatever we say. "'I shall say we think of getting married in the summer, "'when we know each other better, and going to Italy.' "'Why shall you say all that?' said Chicho. "'Because I shall have to give some account of myself, "'or they'll make me do something I don't want to do. "'You might come to the lawyers with me, will you? "'He's an awfully nice old man. "'Then he'd believe in you.' But Chicho shook his head. No, he said, I shan't go. He doesn't want to see me. Well, if you don't want to. But I remember your name, Francesco Marasca, and I remember Pesco Calasio. Chicho heard in silence, as they walked the half-empty, Monday-morning street of Woodhouse. People kept nodding to Alvina. Some hurried inquisitively across to speak to her and look at Chicho. Chicho, however, stood aside and turned his back, "'Oh, yes,' Alvina said. "'I am staying with friends, here and there, for a few weeks. "'No, I don't know when I shall be back. "'Good-bye.' "'You're looking well, Alvina,' people said to her. "'I think you're looking wonderful. "'A change does you good.' "'It does, doesn't it?' said Alvina brightly, "'and she was pleased she was looking well. "'Well, good-bye for a minute,' she said, "'glancing smiling into his eyes and nodding to him "'as she left him at the gate of the lawyer's house "'by the ivy-covered wall.' The lawyer was a little man, all grey. Alvina had known him since she was a child, but rather as an official than an individual. She arrived all smiling in his room. He sat down and scrutinised her sharply, officially, before beginning. "'Well, Miss Houghton, and what news have you?' "'I don't think I've any, Mr. Beebe. I came to you for news.' "'Ah!' said the lawyer, and he fingered a paperweight that covered a pile of papers. "'I'm afraid there is nothing very pleasant, unfortunately.' "'And nothing very unpleasant, either, for that matter.' He gave her a shrewd little smile. "'Is the will proved?' "'Not yet. But I expect it will be through in a few days' time.' "'And are all the claims in?' "'Yes, I think so. I think so.' And again he laid his hand on the pile of papers, under the paperweight, and ran through the edges with the tips of his fingers. "'All those,' said Alvina. "'Yes,' he said quietly. It sounded ominous. "'Many,' said Alvina. "'A fair amount, a fair amount. "'Let me show you a statement.' He rose and brought her a paper. She made out, with the lawyer's help, that the claims against her father's property exceeded the gross estimate of his property by some seven hundred pounds. "'Does it mean we owe seven hundred pounds?' she asked. "'That is only on the estimate of the property. "'It might, of course, realise much more when sold, or it might realise less.' "'How awful!' said Alvina, her courage sinking. "'Unfortunate! Unfortunate! "'However, I don't think the realisation of the property would amount to less than the estimate. "'I don't think so. "'But even then,' said Alvina, "'there is sure to be something owing.' "'She saw herself saddled with her father's debts. "'I'm afraid so,' said the lawyer. "'And then what?' said Alvina. "'Oh, the creditors will have to be satisfied with a little less than they claim, I suppose.' "'Not a very great deal, you see. "'I don't expect they will complain a great deal. "'In fact, some of them will be less badly off than they feared. "'No, on that score we need not trouble further. "'Useless if we do, anyhow. 
But now, about yourself. Would you like me to try to compound with the creditors, so that you could have some sort of provision? They are mostly people who know you, know your condition, and I might try— Try what? said Alvina. To make some sort of compound. Perhaps you might retain a lease of Miss Pinnegar's workrooms. Perhaps even something might be done about the cinematograph. What would you like? Alvina sat still in her chair, looking through the window at the ivy sprays and the leaf buds on the lilac. She felt she could not, she could not cut off every resource. In her own heart she had confidently expected a few hundred pounds, even a thousand or more, and that would make her something of a catch to people who had nothing. But now, nothing, nothing at the back of her but her hundred pounds. When that was gone— In her dilemma she looked at the lawyer. "'You didn't expect it would be quite so bad,' he said. "'I think I didn't,' she said. "'No, well, it might have been worse.' Again he waited, and again she looked at him vacantly. "'What do you think?' he said. For an answer she only looked at him with wide eyes. Perhaps she would rather decide later. "'No,' she said. "'No. It's no use deciding later.' The lawyer watched her with curious eyes. His hand beat a little impatiently. "'I will do my best,' he said, "'to get what I can for you.' "'Oh, well,' she said, "'better let everything go. "'I don't want to hang on. "'Don't bother about me at all. "'I shall go away anyhow.' "'You will go away,' said the lawyer, "'and he studied his fingernails. "'Yes, I shan't stay here.' "'Oh, and may I ask "'if you have any definite idea "'where you will go?' "'I've got an engagement as pianist "'with a travelling theatrical company.' "'Oh, indeed,' said the lawyer, scrutinising her sharply. She stared away vacantly out of the window. He took to the attentive study of his fingernails once more. "'And at a sufficient salary?' "'Quite sufficient, thank you,' said Alvina. "'Oh, well, well now,' he fidgeted a little. "'You see, we are all old neighbours and connected with your father for many years. "'We, that is, the persons interested, and myself, "'would not like to think that you were driven out of Woodhouse, uh, 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 destitute, "'if uh, we could come to some composition, make some arrangement that would be agreeable to you, "'and would, in some measure, secure you means of a livelihood.' "'He watched Alvina with sharp blue eyes.' Alvina looked back at him, still vacantly. "'No, thanks awfully,' she said. "'But don't bother. I'm going away.' "'With the travelling theatrical company?' "'Yes.' The lawyer studied his fingernails intensely. "'Well,' he said, feeling with a fingertip an imaginary roughness of one nail-edge. "'Well, in that case, in that case, supposing you have made an irrevocable decision?' He looked up at her sharply. She nodded slowly, like a porcelain mandarin. "'In that case,' he said, "'we must proceed with the valuation and the preparation for the sale.' "'Yes,' she said faintly. "'You realise, he said, "'that everything in Manchester House, "'except your private personal property "'and that of Miss Pinnegar, "'belongs to the claimants, "'your father's creditors, "'and may not be removed from the house.' "'Yes,' she said. "'And it will be necessary to make an account "'of everything in the house.' "'So if you and Miss Pinnegar will put your possessions strictly apart, "'but I shall see Miss Pinnegar during the course of the day, "'would you ask her to call about seven? "'I think she is free, then.' "'Alvina sat trembling. "'I shall pack my things to-day,' she said. "'Of course,' said the lawyer. "'Any little things to which you may be attached "'the claimants would no doubt wish to you to regard as your own. 
for anything of greater value, your piano, for example, I should have to make a personal request. Oh, I don't want anything, said Alvina. No? Well, you will see. You'll be here a few days? No, said Alvina. I'm going away today. Today? Is that also irrevocable? Yes, I must go this afternoon. On account of your engagement? May I ask where your company is performing this week? Far away? Mansfield. Oh, well then, in case I particularly wish to see you, you could come over. If necessary, said Alvina, but I don't want to come to Woodhouse unless it is necessary. Can't we write? Yes, certainly, certainly, most things, certainly. And now, he went into certain technical matters, and Alvina signed some documents. At last she was free to go. She had been almost an hour in the room. "'Well, good morning, Miss Houghton. You will hear from me, and I from you. I wish you a pleasant experience in your new occupation. You are not leaving Woodhouse for ever.' "'Good-bye,' she said, and she hurried to the road. Try as she might, she felt as if she had had a blow which knocked her down. She felt she had had a blow. At the lawyer's gate she stood a minute. There, across the hollow, rose the cemetery hill. There were her graves, her mother's, Miss Frost's, her father's. Looking, she made out the white cross at Miss Frost's grave, the grey stone at her parents'. Then she turned slowly, under the church wall, back to Manchester House. She felt humiliated. She felt she did not want to see anybody at all. She did not want to see Miss Pennegar, nor the Natchiquitawaras, and least of all Chicho. She felt strange in Woodhouse, almost as if the ground had risen from under her feet and hit her over the mouth. The fact that Manchester House and its very furniture was under seal to be sold on behalf of her father's creditors made her feel as if all her Woodhouse life had suddenly gone smash. She loathed the thought of Manchester House. She loathed staying another minute in it. And yet she did not want to go to the Natchiquitoaras either. The church clock above her clanged eleven. She ought to take the twelve-forty train to Mansfield. Yet, instead of going home, she turned off down the alley, towards the fields and the brook. How many times had she gone that road? How many times had she seen Miss Frost bravely striding home that way from her music pupils? How many years had she noticed a particular wild cherry-tree come into blossom, a particular bit of blackthorn scatter its whiteness in among the pleached twigs of a hawthorn hedge? How often, how many springs had Miss Frost come home with a bit of this blackthorn in her hand? Alvina did not want to go to Mansfield that afternoon. She felt insulted. She knew she would be much cheaper in Madame's eyes. She knew her own position with the troop would be humiliating. It would be openly a little humiliating. But it would be much more maddeningly humiliating to stay in Woodhouse and experience the full flavour of Woodhouse's calculated benevolence. She hardly knew which was worse, the cool look of insolent, half-contempt, half-satisfaction with which Madame would receive the news of her financial downfall, or the officious patronage which she would meet from the Woodhouse magnates. She knew exactly how Madame's black eyes would shine, how her mouth would curl with a sneering, slightly triumphant smile as she heard the news and she could hear the bullying tone in which Henry Wagstaff would dictate the Woodhouse benevolence to her. She wanted to go away from them all, from them all, for ever. Even from Chicho, 
for she felt he insulted her too. Subtly, they all did it. They had regard for her possibilities as an heiress. Five hundred, even two hundred pounds would have made all the difference. Useless to deny it. Even to Chicho. Chicho would have had a lifelong respect for her, if she had come with even so paltry a sum as two hundred pounds. Now she had nothing. He would coolly withhold this respect. She felt he might jeer at her, and she could not get away from this feeling. Mercifully, she had the bit of ready money, and she had a few trinkets which might be sold, nothing else. Mercifully, for the mere moment, she was independent. Whatever else she did, she must go back and pack. She must pack her two boxes and leave them ready, for she felt that once she had left, she would never come back to Woodhouse again. If England had cliffs all round, why, when there was nowhere else to go and no getting beyond, she could walk over one of the cliffs. Meanwhile she had her short run before her. She banked hard on her independence. So she turned back to the town. She would not be able to take the twelve-forty train, for it was already midday, but she was glad. She wanted some time to herself. She would send Chicho on. Slowly she climbed the familiar hill, slowly and rather bitterly. She felt her native place insulted her, and she felt the Natchez insulted her. In the midst of the insult she remained isolated upon herself, and she wished to be alone. She found Chicho waiting at the end of the yard, eternally waiting, it seemed. He was impatient. "'You have been a long time?' he said. "'Yes,' she answered. "'We shall have to make haste to catch the train.' "'I can't go by this train. I shall have to come on later.' "'You can just eat a mouthful of lunch and go now.' They went indoors. Miss Pinnegar had not yet come down. Mrs. Rowlings was busy peeling potatoes. "'Mr. Marasca is going by the train. He'll have to have a little cold meat,' said Alvina. "'Would you mind putting it ready while I go upstairs?' "'Sharps is in Fullbanks's sent them bills,' said Mrs. Rowlings. Alvina opened them and turned pale. It was thirty pounds, the total funeral expenses. She had completely forgotten them. And Mr. Atterwell wants to know what you'd like to put on Thedstone for your father, if you'd write it down. All right. Mrs. Rollings popped on the potatoes for Miss Pinnegar's dinner, and spread the cloth for Chicho. When he was eating, Miss Pinnegar came in. She inquired for Alvina, and went upstairs. Have you had your dinner? she said, for there was Alvina sitting writing a letter. I'm going by a later train, said Alvina. Both of you? No, he's going now. Miss Pinnegar came downstairs again, and went through to the scullery. When Alvina came down, she returned to the living-room. "'Give this letter to Madame,' Alvina said to Chicho. "'I shall be at the hall by seven to-night. I shall go straight there.' "'Why can't you come now?' said Chicho. "'I can't possibly,' said Alvina. "'The lawyer has just told me father's debts come to much more than everything is worth. Nothing is ours, not even the plate you're eating from. Everything is under seal to be sold to pay off what he's owing.' "'so I've got to get my own clothes and boots together "'or they'll be sold with the rest. "'Mr. Beebe wants you to go round at seven this evening, "'Miss Pinnegar, before I forget.' "'Really?' gasped Miss Pinnegar. "'Really? "'The house and the furniture and everything got to be sold up. "'Then we're on the streets. "'I can't believe it.' "'So he told me,' said Alvina. "'But how positively awful,' said Miss Pinnegar, "'sinking motionless into a chair.' "'It's not more than I expected,' said Alvina. "'I'm putting my things into my two trunks, "'and I shall just ask Mrs. Slaney to store them for me. "'Then I've the bag I shall travel with.' "'Really?' gasped Miss Pinnegar. "'I can't believe it. "'And when have we got to get out? 
"'Oh, I don't think there's a desperate hurry. "'They'll take an inventory of all the things, "'and we can live on here till they're actually ready for the sale. "'And when will that be? "'I don't know. A week or two. "'And is the cinematograph to be sold the same? "'Yes, everything. The piano, even Mother's portrait. "'It's impossible to believe it,' said Miss Pinnegar. "'It's impossible. "'It can never have left things so bad.' "'Chicho,' said Alvina, "'you'll really have to go if you're to catch the train. "'You'll give Madame my letter, won't you? "'I should hate you to miss the train. "'I know she can't bear me already, "'for all the fuss and upset I cause.' "'Chicho rose slowly, wiping his mouth. "'You'll be there at seven o'clock,' he said. "'At the theatre, she replied. "'And without more ado, he left. "'Mrs. Rowlings came in. "'You've heard,' said Miss Pinnegar, dramatically. "'I heard something,' said Mrs. Rowlings. "'Sold up. "'Everything to be sold up. "'Every stick and rag. "'I never thought I should live to see the day,' said Miss Pinnegar. "'You might almost have expected it,' said Mrs. Rowlings. "'But you're all right yourself, Miss Pinnegar. "'Your money isn't with his, is it?' "'No,' said Miss Pinnegar. "'What little I have put by is safe. "'But it's not enough to live on. "'It's not enough to keep me, "'even supposing I only live another ten years. "'If I only spend a pound a week, "'it costs fifty-two pounds a year.' "'And for ten years, look at it, it's five hundred and twenty pounds, "'and you couldn't say less. "'And I haven't half that amount. "'I never had more than a wage, you know. "'Why, Miss Frost earned a good deal more than I do, "'and she didn't leave much more than fifty. "'Where's the money to come from?' "'But if you've enough to start a little business,' said Alvina. "'Yes, it's what I shall have to do. "'It's what I shall have to do. "'And then what about you? "'What about you?' "'Oh, don't bother about me,' said Alvina. "'Yes, it's all very well, don't bother. "'But when you come to my age, you know you've got to bother, "'and bother a great deal. "'If you're not going to find yourself in a position you'd be sorry for, "'you have to bother, and you'll have to bother before you've done.' "'Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof,' said Alvina. "'Huh! Sufficient for a good many days, it seems to me.' "'Miss Pinnegar was in a real temper.' To Alvina this seemed an odd way of taking it. The three women sat down to an uncomfortable dinner of cold meat and hot potatoes and warmed-up pudding. "'But whatever you do,' pronounced Miss Pinnegar, "'whatever you do, and however you strive, in this life, you're knocked down in the end. You're always knocked down.' "'It doesn't matter,' said Alvina. "'If it's only in the end, it doesn't matter if you've had your life.' "'You've never had your life till you're dead,' said Miss Pinnegar. "'And if you work and strive, you've a right to the fruits of your work.' "'It doesn't matter,' said Alvina, laconically, "'so long as you've enjoyed working and striving.' But Miss Pinnegar was too angry to be philosophic. Alvina knew it was useless to be either angry or otherwise emotional. Nonetheless, she also felt as if she had been knocked down, and she almost envied poor Miss Pinnegar the prospect of a little day-by-day -day haberdashery shop in Tamworth. Her own problem seemed so much more menacing. "'Answer or die,' said the Sphinx of fate. Miss Pinnegar could answer her own fate according to its question. She could say, "'Haberdashery shop,' and her Sphinx would recognise this answer as true to nature, and would be satisfied. But every individual has his own, or her own fate, and her own Sphinx. Alvina's Sphinx was an old, deep thoroughbred. She would take no mongrel answers and her thoroughbred teeth were long and sharp. To Alvina, the last of the fantastic but pure-bred race of Houghton,
the problem of her fate was terribly abstruse. The only thing to do was not to solve it, to stray on and answer fate with whatever came into one's head. No good striving with fate. Trust to a lucky shot, or take the consequences. "'Miss Pinnegar,' said Alvina, "'have we any money in hand?' "'There is about twenty pounds in the bank. It's all shown in my books,' said Miss Pinnegar. "'We couldn't take it, could we? Every penny shows in the books.' Alvina pondered again. "'Are there more bills to come in?' she asked. "'I mean, my bills. Do I owe anything?' "'I don't think you do,' said Miss Pinnegar. "'I'm going to keep the insurance money, anyway. They can say what they like. I've got it, and I'm going to keep it.' "'Well,' said Miss Pinnegar, "'it's not my business, but there's sharps and full-banks to pay.' "'I'll pay those,' said Alvina. "'You'll tell Atterwell what to put on father's stone. How much does it cost?' Five shillings a letter, you remember.' "'Well, we'll just put the name and the date. How much will that be? "'James Houghton, born 17th January.' "'You'll have to put also of,' said Miss Pinnegar. "'Also of,' said Alvina. "'One, two, three, four, five, six. Six letters, thirty shillings. Seems an awful lot for also of.' "'But you can't leave it out,' said Miss Pinnegar. "'You can't economise over that.' "'I begrudge it.' said Alvina. End of chapter 10, part 2 Read by Tony Foster